God commanded Saul directly to utterly destroy the Amalekites, to leave nothing and no one alive. But Saul prioritized his own desires and his own will above the Lord's. He kept the Amalek king alive, and he kept the best of the livestock. Saul disobeyed despite clear commands. His own personal agenda meant more in the moment than following God's will. The temptation uh, stubbornly remains the same even for all of us this morning, to pursue our own desires and our own, what we would perceive as obedience contrary to God's commands. And yet, like Saul, when we give in to temptation and sin, it's like we've cut ourselves off from the presence and blessing of God. Saul's failure to obey God's clear commands, it came with devastating consequences. It cost him the kingdom. It cost him his fellowship with God. And so when we cling to our own desires over God's, it damages our relationship with him in some measure. Like Saul, we desperately need repentance as a gift given to us to be able to do, and we need a corrected heart of humility before God. And that's really the great condition that we can uh, relate to here, where we read in, in 1 Samuel 15, this theme centering around human disobedience and our, our human tendency to prioritize our own agendas and desires over God's commands. But what it does is it needs to lead to the need for repentance and submission to God's will. And so you do have a, uh, an outline, I believe, in the bulletin. And so in two parts, we're going to look at the danger of partial obedience, how I described to the children as halfway obedience, and then we're going to look at the need for genuine repentance. And so as we explore this passage today, I would encourage you uh, to search your hearts. And as we do so, perhaps we may feel overwhelmed, realizing how far short we do fall and uh, choosing our own desires over God's, falling into temptations without recognizing his lordship over our lives. But yet that recognition, uh, that guilt and recognition of sin uh, can be healthy, but we don't stop there. We have to recognize that the gospel has to be shared and proclaimed, and we're going to see how that comes out uh, in our text this morning. So, the danger of partial obedience, we see right away God's clear and decisive command to Saul regarding the destruction of the Amalekites. God commands Saul, through his designated prophet Samuel, to attack and destroy this enemy as judgment for opposing Israel when they were coming up out of Egypt the, many centuries before. So in attacking the weak and defenseless among God's people, the Amalekites were well-deserving of judgment. It revealed the deep wickedness and cruelty in their body. Now God deems it justified to repay them for their sins through this judgment. His justice and his righteousness demand it. Listen what Samuel says to Saul. Listen. Listen to the words of the Lord. That word listen in the Hebrew 
it's, it calls for very close attention to what is said uh, with a view to compliance. Listen to this, and you need to do it. You must do it. Uh, literally, in the grammar, it's listen to the voice of the words of the Lord. So through Samuel, it's literally as if God himself is speaking directly to Saul, ordering him to destroy everything that is the Amalekites, leaving nothing alive. There's no ambiguity there. There's no confusion. It's pretty clear what he should do. Pretty straightforward directive from the Lord. Notice the completeness of destruction that's commanded there. Nothing is to be left. He's told to go and strike, mandating Saul to act as the Lord's heavy hand of execution. So for Saul not to follow through with this command, it's a huge deal. Everything that is the Amalekites, they are to devote to destruction. That is, all individuals, man, woman, and child, and all of their possessions and belongings, including livestock and whatever else, were to be consigned to the Lord. This is no partial conquest. God instructs all to spare nothing and no one. All must perish under divine retribution. That comprehensive language leaves no doubt as to God's resolve here. Everything that breathes among the Amalekites is to be annihilated. Now, I don't have time this morning to unpack the ways in which God used Israel to destroy her enemies. Some of this language can seem pretty... Um, it strikes us a little bit as this wrathful Old Testament God, but there's ways that we can develop that theme a little bit more. But we can do so at a later time. Uh, but the, the point here this morning is, do, do we grasp the clarity in God's instructions to Saul? Do you see it? Do you read it? It's not hard to notice. But then we move into verses 4 through 9, where it's also not hard to notice Saul's disobedience. God's instructions were clear, but Saul's disobedience is pretty clear for all of us to see. We can probably and safely assume that Saul himself knew of the wickedness of the Amalekites and that their judgment was just and that it had gone on long enough. So Saul does set out determined to enforce this righteous decree of God. So now, in this initial moment of Saul going out, Saul's obedience was sincere. We, we have to admit that as readers of this text. Saul raised his army. He steadied his nerve and his resolve to wage war against a depraved uh, enemy. That was at least a part of God's command. But if only such full obedience had lasted with Saul. Because sadly, this opening act of obedience is soon going to give way to proud disobedience, as we'll see. Now, there's kind of a sidebar here, another note about Saul that is a little praiseworthy and noteworthy. You see how he spared the Kenites, uh, um, a positive action by Saul of telling them, get out of the way, we don't want you to get involved here. Another positive attribute of Saul, but what that only does is serve to contrast his devastating disobedience. Saul can do good things. Saul can do good things, 
But if ultimately he disobeys God's clear command, there will be consequences. So now in verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. All right. We could stop there. He did it. Right? Wrong. Verses 8 through 9 spell out the grievous act of incomplete and partial obedience by Saul. Though they followed part of God's word, destroying the worthless livestock, they intentionally kept the king, King Agag, alive and preserved the best sheep, the best cattle, and the best of all the other valuables of the Amalekites in direct violation of what God told him not to do, to not spare them. It's a pretty clear directive in verse 3. When it comes to Old Testament narratives like this, uh, we can easily gloss over uh, these accounts as if it isn't a big deal. But this is a big deal. Saul has violated the very command of the one holy almighty creator of heaven and earth. Even in his partial obedience, he has committed grievous disobedience. We mustn't see this as not a big deal because it has direct implications for us as well. When God gives us a clear direction in his word, we don't have the luxury of following pieces of it that we want or prefer to find just the areas that are convenient for us. As soon as we start deciding which of God's commands we either don't want to obey or even partially obey, we have already crossed over into very dangerous territory. And even though, as it was with Saul in some respects, even though our outward actions may carry a semblance of obedience, our hearts have actually shifted from humble surrender to a very sinful and proud self-reliance upon ourselves. Outward compliance, outward actions mean absolutely nothing if we arrogantly elevate our desires above full surrender to God. You see, God wants all of us externally, but also internally. I hope you sense the urgency there, the call to, to check ourselves and our lives before God. Do you truly obey God with wholehearted passion for his glory and his pleasure? Because the truth of the matter is this. Partial obedience is no obedience at all. It is a what you could call a thinly veiled rebellion stemming from arrogance, coming from self-trust. It's a desire, that, uh, a desire for control that eclipses the very reverence of God. We're going to look more at the consequences for this next. But rebelling against our maker, whether very subtly or very overtly for all to see, damages our intimacy with him and our walk with Christ. And that's why there's a need here that leads us 
into this next point. It needs to lead to the call for genuine repentance when we fall short in this way. The call for genuine repentance. Saul should have genuinely repented of his actions, but tragically, Saul refuses to humble himself before God. The passage tells us pretty clearly that Saul turned back from following the Lord and flagrantly disobeyed his holy commands instead of uh, doing, whatever, uh, doing whatever he desired in his sinful rebellion. Saul dodged true repentance, preferring his own selfish interests over obedience, over faithfulness. And forgive me if a lot of the second point sounds repetitive in some ways, but the text itself is super repetitive in ways of how we see Saul not being genuinely repentant of his sins. You just see it over and over and over again. It's a little exhausting, but such is fallen nature. We see how Saul's character and his betrayal of of following God has angered Samuel. As a prophet of the Lord, Samuel had set before Saul his sacred duties of his kingly office that he was supposed to execute. He had holy expectations within his leadership. And yet Saul defiantly turned away, fallen so far into arrogance, so far into disobedience, refusing to serve the Lord with his whole heart. And you can imagine how much this has grieved the heart of the Lord. We read that the Lord regretted making Saul king over Israel due to his brazen disobedience. Now, the text is sure to say, though, that unlike man, God God doesn't change his mind capriciously all of a sudden and unexpected, unlike we as humans do. That is to say, no events ever take place on earth that trigger God to all of a sudden say, oh, never mind, shouldn't have done that. Um, But what the text is, is expressing is the profound sorrow and disappointment that God felt towards this chosen covenantal leader over the nation of Israel who persisted in rebellion despite grace already shown to him, at least in two accounts before this chapter already. Now, what makes this so devastating, uh, even more so for Saul, is that he has the gall to set up a monument to himself, indicating his pride in his supposed achievements. And when confronted by Samuel, Saul Saul has the gall to utter these words. Blessed be to you, you, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Such a pious man, such such an obedient servant of the Lord. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? are the words that come from Samuel's mouth. Sure, you think you're pious. What do I hear? I don't have time for this fake showmanship. Saul attempts to defend the indefensible. This is where things really start to snowball for him. Even to the point of deflecting criticism off of himself and shirking responsibility. Look at what he says. They have brought them from the Amalekites, meaning the animals and the the goods. 
They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. It's interesting that Saul would say that. To the Lord your God. And the rest, all right, here's where the piousness has to come back in again, but the rest we have devoted to destruction. His comments just reek of fake piety and supposed obedience. Did he actually think that the rituals and the motions of religious activity would mask his actual uh, sinful disobedience? Samuel is right to indict Saul of his true sin. Verse 19, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? That's, that's the true sin at the heart of this text. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Saul continues to avoid admitting failure. Verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Showing off the king of the Amalekites, Agag, offering the best of the spoil. With this righteous zeal, Saul, Samuel rebukes this elevation of empty ritual above full reverent obedience. And he does so in, in this very poetic couplet that you see in verses 22 through 23. The way it's written out in your Bibles almost looks like it's a hymn or a poem. It's got a, a very prophetic emphasis to it. Listen, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Saul's rituals and his outward motions were disgusting to God. They were abhorrent. Why? Because his rebellious heart remained unchained, unchanged. Samuel goes on in verse 23, mentioning that rebellion and presumption are just as evil before God as the darkest witchcraft and idolatry. How would you like it if a prophet came up to you and said that? That your disobedience is just as bad as a witch calling out evil spirits and of idol worship. And because Saul has rejected the good authority of God himself, Samuel says that his authority over the nation of Israel will be pulled and removed from him. Now, Saul has a false repentance. It's not genuine. Verse 24 indicates that he only confesses after being caught red-handed, motivated by self-preservation rather than genuine remorse. Listen to those words he says. I'm sorry, I sinned because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Saul's only admitting all of this because he's being confronted by Samuel. Continuing, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. There's an indication here that Saul and Samuel, while they're meeting right now, are in a very private setting. What Saul wants Samuel to do is to link arms with him and return to the army publicly so that they see that there's been some reconciliation and that things are okay. But despite claiming repentance, 
Saul desperately treasures his royal honor, wanting Samuel to bless him in front of the elders of Israel over against humility before his God. Everyone understand what true repentance requires. Godly sorrow over sin, humility, so not just expressing remorse after being caught, and a willingness to accept all consequences. Saul exhibits none of these. He has no godly sorrow for his actions. He, there's no humbleness uh, before Samuel, before God. He wants to be publicly honored yet before the people of Israel, and he is not willing to accept the consequences for his actions. Because Samuel refuses to return with Saul and, and, and even grant him blessing. His refusal to accept any consequences is shown by his um, stooping very low and grabbing at Samuel's robe and tearing it as he leaves. It's a very dramatic scene demonstrating how far Saul has fallen from God's favor. Compromise and partial obedience cannot now prevent the judgment that is going to befall Saul. The Lord has already torn the kingdom from Saul's hands, and he is going to give it to another who is worthy of the role. Uh, bells should be ringing in your mind as to who that is. David, right? He's coming up. Now, this judgment uh, against Saul, it's going to linger for a bit. It's not happening immediately. It will come as we get closer to Easter on Palm Sunday. We will round out 1 Samuel, and we'll see how that judgment comes to play. And yet, verse 30, pride and self-interest continue to motivate Saul rather than true repentance because he again pleads. He pleads for public honor among men, rather than private restoration before God. The king's heart remains unchanged, and Samuel has to finish the job that Saul was called to do in a rather graphic moment where Samuel eliminates King Agag before the people. Samuel departs. He never lays eyes on Saul again. Their fellowship is broken. And Samuel mourns deeply over Saul's failure. It's a rather tragic end to this account. Well, I'm sure many of us feel the weight of conviction, realizing just how often we fail to fully obey our God and King. Like Saul, we pursue our own desires, often partially, instead of submitting fully to God's commands. And when confronted, whether publicly and perhaps if we feel it internally, maybe we find ourselves mouthing cheap repentance without a heart change, all to preserve our own interests. How utterly we fail as servants of the Most High sometimes. Our, our partial obedience stands condemned. It reveals hearts that are bent in rebellion against God. And were it not for Jesus, the perfectly obedient son, we would remain under that judgment 
like Saul. Our fellowship with God shattered beyond all hope. But that's where we find the beauty of the gospel. For a while, Saul failed utterly as king. The great theme of this series is leading to that greater king, Jesus. And in him, we have that greater king who obeyed all his father's commands perfectly and completely. Though tempted fiercely, Jesus never once pursued his own agenda above his father's. Saul's egregious rebellion was accompanied by the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen. Our completely obedient king was as silent as a lamb as he was led to slaughter, towards a death that he didn't deserve. Jesus submitted fully, even to the point of death on a cross, out of love for you and for me. And by that perfect obedience, Christ imputed his righteousness to your account while your sins were laid upon him on the tree. Despite even the partial obedience and sham repentance that may still fill our lives at times, Jesus yet cloaks us in his perfect record of obedience before the Father. Your sinlessness, sinfulness, sorry, is covered by Christ's sinless sacrifice on Calvary. So if you feel the weight of failure and judgment this morning, Turn from trusting in yourself to relying fully on your obedient king. Bring your disobedience and disingenuous repentance to the foot of the cross and experience the full measure of the Spirit's giving you that gift of genuine repentance. And when that repentance is, is spoken from the words of our lips, there is a liberation that comes through Jesus Christ. We admit the depth of our need before God and we receive the gift of Christ's righteousness by faith alone because only he can restore you with the Father, Jesus Christ. This is truly how deep the Father's love is for us that he would send his only begotten son in this way. Let Jesus' obedience, the fullness of it, swallow up all of our obedience, disobedience. Cling to him as your perfect king, and by the power of his spirit, go from here, seeking to live in greater submission to his lordship, not to earn anything, but because you already have everything in Christ. This call of the gospel is never without a call to obedience, because it's only the gospel that comes first, that then enables us out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us to then obey. And our hope is that we would also obey fully, not partially. Yes, this side of glory, our obedience remains flawed, but the gospel promises forgiveness and transformation even in that struggle. And because of how amazing this grace is, it compels grateful obedience from the heart. Let's go to Jesus in prayer. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel and how it changes lives and how it changes hearts, that we would be compelled to obey, not out of earning anything, but Father, truly because of what you have done through your son Jesus Christ for us. How can we not obey out of love for you? Father, we 
see the tragic ending of Saul, may we not see semblances of that thinly veiled partial disobedience even in our lives today. But may we commit our lives fully, living as living sacrifices before you, enabled by the gospel, by the giving of your spirit to obey and to repent genuinely when we commit sin against you. Pray that you would continue to mold us and shape us, sanctify us in this way. We don't always do these things perfectly, but we pray that you would enrich in us and grow us into maturity as we seek to follow you all of the days of our lives. We pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.